Welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 2nd. I'm your reader, Dagna. Um, today's first story is about Diamond Vogel and Four Colors Usher in 2024 style. Diamond Vogel names its featured colors for the year. Diamond Vogel in Orange City has once again selected multiple colors to feature in 2024 rather than just one color of the year. Prior to 2023, the Orange City-based manufacturer of high-quality paint and coatings released a color of the year along with a color trend report. For 2024, four feature colors have been selected. We recognize that one color alone does not always relate to all consumers and the variety of projects they may be working on, says Sandy Agar Studelska, marketing manager at Diamond Vogel. Featuring four colors delivers a wider variety of options for those seeking inspiration for projects, no matter for interiors or exteriors. The 2024 feature colors are, um, the first one is called Welcome Home, a welcoming, timeless, golden hue that is suited for both interior and exterior projects. Mother Nature, an energized deep green influenced by open spaces and the outdoors. It's My Party, a youthful, vintage-inspired orange. And the last one is Glistening, a light yellow that celebrates confidence and new beginnings. Welcome Home is a great option for siding on exterior spaces when paired with white or cream trim, doors and shutters, according to Agar Studeska. She said Mother Nature is modern accent that is great for kitchens, accent walls and bedrooms or in family spaces or as an accent color on exterior doors or shutters. While It's My Party is suited for children's rooms, exercise spaces, and spaces where you want to spark a, uh, a spark of fun-loving style, Agar Studelska said glistening works well as an accent in small interior nooks and living spaces and it adds a whimsical touch to children's bedrooms. We selected this year's feature colors for their celebration of confidence, their comfort in honoring the past, and nature's effortless inspiration that delivers classic, classic style, she said. In his 2024 color trend report titled Embrace the Adventure, Diamond Vogel grouped each of the feature colors with its own color family or palette, consisting of four additional colors that will pair well with you. Besides It's My Party, the Chart Your Own Course palette, for example, includes Modern Blue, a clean, uplifting soft blue, Dave's Den, a familiar neutral, Ice Dream, a westful soft white, and Black Licorice, a modern refined black. Agar Studelska said Diamond Vogel's trend palettes are helpful for those wanting to learn about additional colors that coordinate best with the feature colors. We celebrate classic style, which delivers soothing and familiar comfort, while embracing expressive colors that are dramatic and full of energy and boost our mood, she said. Our spaces should reflect our personality, deliver joyful inspiration, and ground us to improve our outlook and mental well-being. Founded in 1926, Diamond Vocal provides coding solutions to the industrial, architectural, industrial wood, automotive, aerosol, traffic, and toll manufacturing market. And now we move to um, uh, overview of the upcoming legislative session. And with the headline, state lawmakers will continue to focus on workforce. As Iowa's workforce continues to be limited across all industry sectors, state lawmakers will continue to focus on workforce strategies in 2024, including child care, 
affordable housing, and funding for tax incentives to attract and retain companies providing high-quality, high-paying jobs. Child welfare advocates in the state point to the high cost, impact, and inaccessibility of child care for middle-class families as a key focus for legislators to address in 2024. The latest annual Kids Count report, released last summer by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, found that center-based child care costs Iowa families $10,437 annually, while home-based care costs $6,823 annually, averaging about 10% and 6% respectively of married incomes, married couples' income. According to the report, 14% of Iowa children ages 5 and younger had a family member who quit, changed, or refused a job due to issues with child care in 2020 and 2021. To remove such barriers to employment, leaders of the Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance and Greater Iowa City, Inc. are seeking to boost child care worker wages and expand assistance benefits to people who might join the workforce but who can't afford child care. Iowa Workforce Development found that more than 53,000 women have left the workforce since 2020. That does not include the number of women who are qualified for jobs but don't seek them due to the inability to find or afford child care. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds in May signed into a law legislation that expands eligibility for state child care assistance and child care provider reimbursement rates, while also increasing work requirements for parents of children who qualify for assistance. She declined to be interviewed for this legislative preview series. Senate Democrats, saying the law shows some improvement, criticized it for increasing work requirements and said the funding still is inadequate to address child care staffing shortages and the high cost of keeping Iowans out of the labor force. House File 707 increases the income limit for child care assistance to 160% of the federal poverty level. That equates to a household income of $48,000 for a family of four. Iowa Democrats note more families qualify for state assistance to send their child to private school than qualify for child care aid, and that the same income threshold, 300 percent of the federal poverty level should apply for families seeking child care assistance. Senate Minority Leader Pam Jokum, Democrat from Dubuque, said Senate Democrats support raising the poverty level to 200 percent. It would mean that a family of two, like mom and a child, who earns about $39,000 a year would be eligible for some child care assistance from the state, Jokum said. Republicans argue the new law will help more Iowa families find affordable child care and return to work. And note, Reynolds has approved more than $500 million in state and federal funding to increase access to child care since the start of the pandemic. Reynolds' office said the governor is committed to multifaceted solutions to child care challenges to provide quality care for children, keep parents working, and drive economic development. In addition to issuing more than $218 million in grants to child care providers during the pandemic, the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services has launched programs to fund recruitment and retention bonuses, allow child care workforce to qualify for child care assistance, and promoted partnerships between child care centers and local businesses to support wage enhancements for providers. More than $62 million in grants have been awarded to create more than 6,700 new child care slots in Iowa, the governor's office said. Iowa, though, needs hundreds of thousands more child care slots, according to estimates from the Iowa Women's Foundation. It has calculated a shortfall of 350,000 
child care slots in the state. The group estimates Iowa has lost 33% of its child care providers over the past five years, and nearly 25% of Iowans live in a child care desert with shortage of options, the group says. A 2023 Iowa Child Care Workforce Study notes Iowa faces critical challenges in recruiting and retaining providers due to low wages and lack of sustainable educational advancement opportunities. We can create all the spaces we want, but they can't staff them, Jokum said. Child care workers in Iowa were paid an average of $11.61 per hour, according to 2022 data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Annually, they make an average of $24,140. The study, led by the Iowa Association for the Education of Young Children and conducted by partners at Iowa's Integrated Data System for Decision-Making, found more than nearly 37% of child care providers in the state used at least one public benefit like Medicaid, child care assistance, or supplemental nutritional assistance to support their household. Some Iowa communities have banded together to find creative solutions to waste wages for child care workers and resolve access barriers. Johnson County, for one, used Federal American Rescue Plan Act funds and private dollars to raise the pay of child care workers by $2 an hour and pay the increased payroll taxes. State Senator Janice Weiner, Democrat from Iowa City, said the program is innovative but would need bipartisan support to develop a statewide model. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitford, Republican from Grimes, said lawmakers have passed several big initiatives over the last few years to make child care more accessible and affordable, including trying to eliminate the child care cliff. Lawmakers passed a law two years ago that allows Iowans receiving child care assistance to be slowly weaned off that assistance rather than drop cold turkey when they reach a certain income level, which I think has been largely successful last year, Whitford said. We worked on changing the, some of the staffing regulations and racials to put them more in line with federal racials and have and not have them more stringent. And so at some point we want to make sure and see if those proposals are working. But it is an issue that we know continues to pop up and we're continuing to look for solutions. He did not elaborate on solutions Republicans may propose or support in the upcoming session. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confrist Democrat from Windsor Heights, said House Democrats will push to expand a program statewide that looks at ways that public-private partnerships can create new child care centers and new child care center openings. And then the next topic is affordable housing. Nationwide, communities are grappling with how to boost the supply affordable housing at a time when inflation challenges developers' ability to finance new projects. State and federal tax credit programs, as well as local financial incentives, help make new projects feasible, but applications exceed funds available. Doug Newman, executive director of the Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance, said workforce housing tax credits have certain caps on the level of lease rates or the construction cost per unit. These limitations could make an otherwise ready-to-go project ineligible for funding, Newman said, so it may be time for lawmakers to revisit eligibility requirements. Iowa House Democrats sponsored legislation to create a program to allocate up to $15 million a year of tax credits to build affordable housing units, leveraging $23 million in federal incentives. The proposal, which never advanced out of committee, would expand a first-time home savings account, offering a tax-free way to save for a home and provide home improvement grants based on income. House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican from New Hartford, 
said rather than increase or create new housing tax credits, House Republicans will look at tailoring and modifying state incentives to make them work better, especially for rural Iowa. That could include expanding state assistance to rehabilitate older and blighted homes. Whitfer added much of the gap is in affordable housing is market-driven and there's only so much government can do. I think some of it is getting the government out of the way so that the private sector can solve some of these issues, he said. It doesn't help when interest rates are 7.5%, and it's become unaffordable often by additional regulations on housing that make the cost of a house more expensive. So in some regards, we're looking for free market solutions, but it's something that we are aware of where we've supported different programs at different times for affordable housing. Confers said House Democrats have several proposals they plan to introduce to address housing, but could not yet provide details. And the next section is about business attraction. A large solar energy manufacturer was looking to build in Iowa, but chose Louisiana instead, in part because Iowa could not offer the same incentives the state's economic development chief has said. First Solar Inc. announced in August its plans to build a $1.1 billion manufacturing facility in southwest Louisiana. The project is expected to create about 700 jobs and have an annual payroll of at least $40 million, the Associated Press reported. Debbie Durham, director of the Iowa Economic Development Authority and Iowa Finance Authority, said that Iowa was number two and we would have won had Iowa had enough incentives. A bill proposed by the authority to provide a package of state tax incentives to try to lure a major business development to Iowa stalled in the House on the final day of the 2023 legislative session. To be eligible for the proposed Major Economic Growth Attraction, or MEGA, program, the project would have to be located at a certified site greater than 250 acres, involve an investment of at least $1 billion from a business primarily engaged in research and development, bioscience, or advanced manufacturing, and create jobs that pay at least 140% of the qualifying wage threshold. The proposal also would allow a business based in a foreign country that's an ally of the United States to buy farmland for the project. We are having conversations with the legislatures as well as leadership with the full intention of bringing it back this next year, Durham said. The bill cleared the Senate on a 45-2 to 2 vote, but House Republicans said they were wary of granting foreign ownership of farmland and Grassley suggested the size of the tax rebate was a concern. Grassley said lawmakers will consider the package this year, but House Republicans also want to see similar incentives provided for Iowa rural communities. Why don't we do something like that at a smaller level across the state in more of our rural areas and where we need to have the support, he said. Making sure that we're providing the same level of opportunity in rural Iowa that we are in some of our metro areas to make sure that the incentive programs are evenly divided from rural versus urban. I think all of that is going to be on the table for this upcoming session when it comes to keeping Iowa's economy strong. Our next article, our headline is, Judge Temporarily Halts New Iowa Law on School Books Gender Identity. Calling it incredibly broad and widely overbroad, a federal judge Friday temporarily halted the implementation of most of a new Iowa state law that bans school books and curriculum with depictions of sex acts and prohibits the teaching of gender identity and sexual orientation through sixth grade. The ruling means most of the new law cannot be enforced while the federal courts continue to hear legal challenges to its constitutionality. 
Judge Stephen Loker of the U.S. District Court in Iowa's Southern District in a ruling Friday halted parts of the law that prohibit books and curriculum with depictions of sex acts, as well as the prohibition on teaching gender identity or sexual orientation through sixth grade. The sweeping restrictions in Senate File 496 are unlikely to satisfy the First Amendment under any standard of scrutiny and thus may not be enforced while the case is pending, Loker wrote. Loker left in place a portion of the law that requires educators to notify parents when a student asks to be called by different pronouns. Loker said the plaintiffs in the case lacked legal standing. Because the plaintiffs involved are already publicly LGBTQ, that portion of the law does not apply to them. The new law was approved by only Republican state lawmakers and was signed into law by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. It went into effect July 1st. Hundreds of books have been removed from Iowa schools as districts move to comply with the new law. The law's enforcement measures, including possible disciplinary action for educators, were set to go into effect Monday. On the grounds that it violates their First Amendment rights to free speech, the new state law was challenged by the ACLU of Iowa, the publishing company Penguin Random House Publishing, 16 LGBTQ students in Iowa, the LGBT advocacy organization Iowa Safe Schools, and the Iowa State Education Association Teachers Union. Loker heard from attorneys representing the plaintiffs and the state during the three-hour hearing December 22nd. During that hearing, an attorney for the ACLU of Iowa argued the state law represents the state exercising control over matters of opinion and thought, and said LGBTQ students are self-silencing for fear of their teachers and other educators being punished under the new law. And an attorney for Penguin Random House called the law an unprecedented assault on school libraries. In its defense, the state suggested that some schools may be applying the law too broadly and argued that the law simply keeps graphic depictions out of schools. In his ruling issued Friday, Loker said the portion of the law that bans books and curriculum with depictions of success is incredibly broad and has resulted in the removal of hundreds of books from school libraries, including, among others, nonfiction history books, classic works of fiction, Pulitzer Prize-winning contemporary novels, books that are regularly appear on advanced placement exams, and even books designed to help students avoid being victimized by sexual assault. On the portion of the law that prohibits the teaching of gender identity and sexual orientation through sixth grade, Loker notes the law defines those terms in generic terms, meaning the law would apply to the teaching of all gender identity and sexual orientation, not just when it pertains to LGBTQ individual. The law provides programs, promotion, and instruction to students in those grades relating to gender identity and sexual orientation, but those terms are defined in a neutral way that makes no distinction between cisgender or transgender identity or gay or straight relationships, meaning, on its face, the law forbids any programs, promotion, or instruction recognizing that anyone is male or female or in a relationship of any sort, gay or straight, Loker wrote. The statute is therefore content neutral but so widely overbroad that every school district and elementary school teacher in the state has likely been violating it since the day the school year started. Conversely, Loker also wrote that the law is being misunderstood at grades 7th and above. Loker noted that because the law does not prohibit the teaching of gender identity or sexual orientation at those grades, there is no prohibition on the existence of 
gay-straight alliances in schools or on educators assisting those groups. Teachers and other licensed professionals are not restricted in any way from serving as advisors for such great gay-straight alliances, displaying rainbow flags, providing instruction on gay and transgender rights, and otherwise performing their responsibilities in a manner that emphasizes inclusiveness and respect for LGBTQ students in grades 7 and above. Likewise, students in grades 7 and above are free to engage in whatever forms of expression they wish, subject only to generally applicable restrictions that apply equally to all students, Loka wrote. To the extent school districts, teachers, or students have been interpreting the law otherwise, they are simply wrong. Governor Reynolds, in a statement, said she was extremely disappointed by the judge's ruling. Instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation has no place in kindergarten through sixth grade classrooms, she said, and there should be no question that books containing sexually explicit content, as clearly defined in Iowa law, do not belong in a school library for children. The fact that we're even arguing these issues is ridiculous. The real debate should be on why society is so intent on over-sexualizing our young children. It's wrong, and I will continue to do my part to protect their innocence. Iowa State Education Association President Mike Baranek called the temporary implementation of the new law a big win for education professionals, students, and parents. When education professionals return to work next week, they can do what they do best, take care of all of their students without fear of reprisal, Burnett said in a statement. We are incredibly proud of the thousands of education professionals and employees in Iowa's public schools. This really means they can continue successfully guiding all students without fear of punishment or losing their jobs. The ACLU of Iowa also applauded the ruling in a statement issued with its legal partner in the case, Labda Legal. We are glad our clients, Iowa families, and students will be able to continue the school year free from the harms caused by these parts of this unconstitutional law, Nathan Maxwell, senior attorney for Labda Illegal, said in the statement. This decision sends a strong message to the state that efforts to ban books based on LGBTQ content or target speech that sends a message of inclusion to Iowa LGBTQ students cannot stand. We now move to an article titled Financial Figures, a by-the-numbers look at how the economy fared in 2023. In a year full of big numbers, with strong gains for stocks and even more fantastic flights for crypto, it was one shrinking number that superseded all. Inflation, the scourge of the global economy, moderated this year. It's still relatively high, particularly after the many years of low inflation that everyone enjoyed before U.S. inflation topped 9% two summers ago. But it's cool enough to get investors looking ahead to a 2024 where interest rates will be on the way down instead of up. And so now we're going to look at some of the numbers that shaped global financial markets in 2023. Inflation, 55%. That is the price increase for U.S. used cars from February 2020 through the peak in January 2022. From January 2022 through this November, prices for used cars declined 11.5%. $4, the national average price per gallon of milk in November, up 25% from $3.20 in February 2020. 3.1%, the headline inflation rate at the consumer level in November in the United States. Inflation peaked at 9.1% in June of 2022. The Federal Reserve's target level is 2%. 2.4%, overall inflation in the European Union in November, 
a far cry from the peak of 10.6% in October of 2022. Energy prices plunged 11.5% from the same month a year earlier, but food inflation, inflation remains high at 6.9%. And then the global economy. 22 consecutive months that the United States unemployment rate has come in below 4%. The longest streak since a 27-month run in from November 1967 through January of 1970. The job market held up even as the Federal Reserve tried to slow the economy to fight inflation. And then 67%. This is the percentage of Americans that disapproved of President Joe Biden's handling of the economy in an October poll. Um, that sentiment, if, not, if it persists, could hamper Biden in his expected election rematch with former President Donald Trump. 9.4%. The estimated decline in investment in China's property sector from January through October. Weakness in the property sector and in global demand for China's exports as well as high debt levels, levels and wavering consumer confidence have weighed, in, weighed on the country's economy. Then interest rates. 7.88% is the average rate on a 60-month auto loan in August of 2023, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. The rate was 5.27% in August of 2019. 5%. The peak for the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury, a level not seen since 2007. Bond yields marched higher for much of the year, then reversed sharply the last two months. 21.1% percent. The average credit card interest rate as of August, according to the Federal Reserve, up from 16.3% in 2022 and 14.6% in 2021. And three, the number of times Federal Reserve officials expect to cut interest rates in 2024, according to recent projections. The Fed raised rates 11 times between March 2022 and July of 2023. And then seven, the number this small number of stocks was alone responsible for roughly two-thirds of the S&P's 500's return in 2023 through mid-December. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla, and Meta platforms also are Wall Street's biggest stocks. 27.3% The year-to-date gain for Japan's Nikkei 225 index as of December 19th. It was the Nikkei's best performance since 2013. 43,000. Bitcoin surged past this level in December after starting the year below 16,300. It and other cryptocurrencies had tumbled last year's rising rates hit investments seen as particularly wet, risky. Then 5%. The return for the largest U.S. bond mutual fund as of December 14th. It has been on track for a third straight yearly loss, but excitement about potential cuts to rates set bond prices soaring. And then three, the combined number of days the S&P 500 rose or fell by at least 2% in 2023. The index rose 24.2% through the year as of December 19th. In 2022, a down year for stocks, there were more than 40 such days. And then for housing, 7.79%, the average rate on a 30-year mortgage on October 26th, according to Freddie Mac. It was the highest average rate since 2000. $2,199 is the median monthly payment listed by prospective home buyers on mortgage applications in October, a 9.3% increase from a year earlier.
67%. The share of U.S. homeowners who had a home loan with a fixed rate of 5% or less as of September. 1.5 million. The number of existing U.S. homes on the market at the end of October. That was down 5.7% from October 2022 and is roughly half the historical average going back to 1999. Sales of existing homes fell 20.2% in the first 10 months of, the, of 2023 and $391,800. The median sales price of an existing home in October, up 3.4% from October 2022. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 2nd. I'm Dagna, and I'm your reader today, and we'll turn to today's obituaries. Carol F. Wilson, 79, Vida Grove, passed away December 16 at a local hospital. A funeral service will be held Saturday, January 6 at 11 a.m. with a visitation one hour prior to the service at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. She left behind a lot of stuff to her family who has no idea what to do with it. So if you're looking for hundreds of yards of fabric, 10,000 buttons, storage totes full of craft items, a large selection of Americana, a toaster oven slightly used, or even enough rusty Wallace memorabilia to fill a house, a thousand kitchen and crafting tools that we aren't sure what they're used for, you should wait the appropriate amount of time and get in touch. Tomorrow would be fine. This is not an ad for a pawn shop, but an obituary for a great woman, wife, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and great-great-grandmother born on August 5, 1944 in Chicago, the daughter of the late Frank and Gloria Orsi. She married Lauren Cole in Sauk Village, Illinois. Later on, August 26, 1995, she was united in marriage to Charles Wilson. She leaves behind a very dysfunctional family that she was very proud of. Carol was world-renowned for her lack of patience, not holding back her opinion, and a knack for telling it like it is. With that said, she was genuine to a fault, a pussycat at heart, or lion, a.k.a. redhead, and yet she sugar-coated nothing. She liked four-letter words as much as she loved NASCAR. Yeah, she even rode in a race car on the track in Phoenix writing her quad in the desert, crafting, and White Castle. She had a passion for shopping, and if you were one in trouble, you got to go shopping as her helpers when child labor was legal, or so we were told. These words of encouragement, wisdom, and sometimes comfort kept us in line, taught us a school of hard knocks, and gave us something to pass down to our children. Everyone always knew where you stood with her. She liked you or she didn't. It was black and white. As her children, we are trying to figure out which one it was for us. We know she loved us. She was a master cook in the kitchen. She believed in cooking enough to feed the neighborhood. She loved children and ran her own daycare for many years in her home, Dottie's Daycare in Sergeant Bluff and her home in Glendale, Arizona. She touched the lives of so many children. She was a founding member of Sioux City's Missing and Exploited Children and worked with the Sheriff's Department. She loved during security for many events and had the ability to meet many artists. While living in Sauk Village, Illinois, she was a member and president of the Sauk Village Ladies Auxiliary for the Fire Department. She will be sorely missed. All whom loved her dearly and will never forget her tenacity, wit, charm, grace, when pertinent, and undying love and caring for them. Roger Casey, 62, passed away Wednesday, December 27th at Happy Siesta Healthcare Center in Remsen. 
Services will be held at 10 a.m. Saturday, January 6th at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel with Father Tim Fredrickson officiating. Visitation with the family will be one hour prior at the funeral home. Burial will be at Calvary Cemetery. Roger was born on May 14, 1961 in Sioux City, the son of Don and Bonita Casey. Roger was raised in Sioux City until 1980 when he moved to Northwest Iowa Village in Sheldon. Here, he lived in Sheldon until 2023 before moving to Happy Siesta Retirement Home in Remsen for the last few months of his life. He received excellent care over his life from people who loved and appreciated Roger's unique and fun-loving personality. Roger loved to be on the go and was always planning his next adventure. He provided friends and family with many laughs and will be missed by all who knew and loved him. Jana Lois Cotton Collin, 86, formerly of Sioux City, passed away December 20th in Fort Worth, Texas, surrounded by her loving family. Jana was born January 20th, 1937, the last of four children to parents Laverne and Kenneth Cotton in Sioux City, where she spent much of her life. She was a member of the Yonkers Teen Board and participated in synchronized swimming. Jana graduated from the Castle on the Hill Central High School in Sioux City, where she was a cheerleader. She went on to the University of South Dakota, where she was a member of Pi Beta Phi. During the summer before her sophomore year, she met the love of her life and husband of nearly 66 years, Robert E. Cowan III. After some time going steady long distance, the two moved on to the University of Iowa, where she became an enthusiastic Iowa Hawkeyes fan. Marrying on December 26, 1957, together they raised three children in Sioux City, a daughter named Cynthia and twin sons, Robert IV and Kenneth. While in Sioux City, she was a member of the First Presbyterian Church and a member of the Junior League. Jana was a loving homemaker, competitive tennis player, golfer, and enjoyed spending her infrequent leisure hours with her many friends and at the Sioux City Boat Club with family. In 1983, the family moved to West Des Moines and later Clive, where Jana and Bob were again active members of the Central Presbyterian Church, as well as members of the Des Moines Golf and Country Club, where her love of tennis grew and she became an avid tennis player, playing until she was 79 years old. She and Bob, who she lovingly called B, were especially competitive, winning many mixed double trophies and forging couple rivalries, which invariably converted to close friends off the court. When not playing tennis, she could often be found playing a mean game of bridge. The other loves of her life were her family. She cherished her time with her children, nieces and nephews, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She took the loving name Grammy, or Great Grammy, lovingly shortened to Gigi. She passed on to them an appreciation for knitting, needlepoint, tennis, gardening, and a humor that was both kind and feisty. Though grieving the loss of her presence, her family finds hope in the promise of Christ and her Christian faith and will cling to memories until we meet again. In lieu of flowers, memorials can be given to First Presbyterian Church, 608 Nebraska Street in Sioux City, or Central Presbyterian Church, 3829 Grand Avenue, Des Moines, or the Mass Cell Disease Society at tmsforacure.org. Guy Bradley Watkins, 58, of Sioux City, passed away Wednesday, December 27th at a local hospital. A celebration of life will be held at a later date.
Guy was born September 18, 1965 in Sioux City, the son of David and Marilyn Watkins. He grew up in Sioux City and graduated from North High School in 1984. Guy attended Indiana University and graduated with a business degree and a minor in economics. Guy married Denise Dee Dee Ling on October 15, 1994 in Sioux City. To this union, three sons were born. Guy worked for the family business, Prodneckel, for 35 years and when his father passed away became owner and operator of the company. He was previously active with the Boys Club and a member of the Terek Group for 35 years where he acted as the former president, vice president, and treasurer. Guy belonged to multiple dental associations and was a volunteer of IMOM, Iowa Mission of Mercy. He enjoyed cooking, barbecue, and watching football, especially the Kansas City Chiefs, and playing with his dogs. Guy's greatest love and joy in his life were his boys and the time spent with his family. Nancy Ann Getch, 86, of Sioux City, passed away December 28th. Per her wishes, cremation has taken place and there will be a private celebration of life at a later date. Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City is handling the arrangements. Johnny A. Peitzer, 72, of Sioux City, passed away December 26. A memorial service will be held Friday, January 5th at 11 a.m. with a visitation one hour prior at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Burial will be at Logan Park Cemetery. We'll now move to the sports section and we'll have a couple of stories on high school basketball beginning with the um, boys basketball and it's headline five teams players to watch just before flipping the calendar over to 2024 here is a look at five notable teams and individual players that have produced in 2023 and look for continued success as the season continues in 2024 so the five teams to watch Dakota Valley. The Panthers, ranked third in Class A, added to their win streak after beating Hill City 86-56 at the Parkson Classic on Friday. The nation's longest, longest active win streak stands at 59. Senior Jackson Wingert has been one of the area's best players this season in averaging 26.5 points per game with a near 70% field goal percentage to go with 8.2 rebounds per game. Junior Luke Bruns has also enjoyed a breakout season thus far, averaging 26.4 points a contest to go with 4.4 rebounds, 2.5 assists, and 2.4 steals a game. Logan Collette boosted his scoring average into double figures with a 21-point outing against Lakota Tech, in which he was 5 for 11 from a three-point range. Then the next team is the West Lion. At 10-0, the Wildcats are the top-ranked team for Class 2A. Junior Carson Hugenveen is leading the team in scoring at 12.9 points per game, but West Lyon can attack opponents in waves as Wildcats depth has provided the team with eight players averaging five points a game or more. Six players are grabbing more than two rebounds a, rebounds a contest, two averaging four or more assists per game, and two going for two or more steals. MOC Floyd Valley. The Class 3A eighth-ranked Dutch sit at 8-2 with one loss against Siouxland Conference for West Lion and another against out-of-state opponent Scott Catholic. Jess, senior Jesse Van Kalsbeek, a Northwestern College signee, is leading the team in scoring average and second in rebounds a game to junior Owen Vanderpool's 6.7 a game. 
South O'Brien. The Wolverines are ranked 5th in Class 1A and stand at 8-0. Junior Derek Paulson is pouring in 20 points a game while he and senior David Botchen are averaging over 5 rebounds a game. And South O'Brien has 3 players dishing out more, 2 or more assists a game, led by senior Ben Woodall's 3.9 per. Botchen and senior Willie Conley joined Paulson in averaging double figures in points. Combined, it set the table for a season in which South O'Brien is winning by an average of 15 points as the Wolverines are scoring 65.5 points a contest as a team while allowing 40.4. And then East Sac County. The Raiders are undefeated with only one of those wins coming by less than 10 points. Four players are averaging double figures for East Sac County, led by sophomore Ryan Clare's 17.9, and includes junior Sam Julin, senior Caleb Eichhorn, and senior Luke Wright, by also averaging 12.6 rebounds, the third most in Class 2A uh, a game. Clare is putting up a double-double nearly every game for the Raiders. And then the five players to watch. Reese Vanderzee from Central Lion. The Iowa football recruit ranks second in Class 2A at 28.8 points per game this season. He's also in the top of uh, among 2A rebounders and grabbing 10.6 a game. Although the other, the 2A 10th ranked Lions are 5-4 on the season and coming off a loss to Esterville Lincoln Central, in the Lions' last two wins, Vander Zee had games of 44 points and 13 rebounds, as well as 32 points and 12 rebounds. Caden Van Riggenmorder from Western Christian. The Wolfpack are 7-1 and ranked second in Class 2A. Western Christian bounced back from its first loss of the season suffered to Dakota Valley at the Baumgars Invitational by beating Sergeant Bluff Luton. Van Riggenmorder, a junior, leads the team in scoring average, rebounds per game, assists per game, and is shooting nearly 50% on field goal attempts. Colin Homan, Remsen St. Mary's. The Class 1A 9th ranked Remsen St. Mary's are riding the 6 foot 6 junior to the tune of 16.9 points per game, 7.6 rebounds a game, and 1 block per outing, all team highs. The Hawks have also gotten major contributions from junior Sam Schmillen, Brady Konek, and Landon Waldschmidt, among others, but the team plays through Homan. And with him producing like he has thus far, Remsen St. Mary's could be on the verge of another deep tournament run. Brody Muencraft, Westward. The Rebels have started off to a 6-5 start, but may have their best play ahead of them with the junior Eukenrath entrenched as the team's go-to scorer with an average of 22.1 points per game. He supplements his scoring with 4.7 rebounds a game, 4.1 steals, and 3.3 assists. The sport supporting cast includes senior Kyron Flowers, who averages double figures in points, Sophomore Hayden Versch and junior Joe DeWalt, among others. And then the last one is Matt Knoll from Bishop Helan. The Class 3A 6th ranked Crusaders hit a two-game skid going earlier in the month, but recovered with a lopsided win over Sioux City West to head into the holiday break with a win. Knoll, a six foot seven senior Wayne State commit, currently ranks third in 3A in scoring average, fifth in rebounds per game, and is nearly three assists per game. Helan has also gotten solid contributions from seniors Quinn Olson, Sean Schaefer, Bo Chamberlain, and Brady Schultz, and can boast a dangerous inside-out game with Noel established down low. 
And now we move on to the girls to have a look at five notable area girls basketball teams and the five players that have produced in 2023 and look for continued success in 2024. For the teams, Bishop Helan, the Class 4A 6th ranked Crusaders are one of four unbeaten teams left in 4A and have done so with several players making plays. The team's leading scorer in each of the last two seasons, Northwest Missouri State recruit Brooklyn Stanley, is currently third in scoring average at 11.3 points per contest. Stanley, however, is leading the squad in assists per game. Freshman Melina Snoozy, a transfer who played at Dakota Valley as an eighth grader, is scoring over 18 points per game, and junior Abby Lee nearly 13 points per game with 8.9 rebounds. He also has several other key figures, such as senior Maddie Demke. Even with the undefeated start, the Crusaders may have their best basketball ahead of them yet. And now Pender. The Pendragons, the defending state champions, are off to a 10-0 start and are the top-ranked team in Nebraska's Class D1. Head coach Jason Dolliver has three players averaging double-digit points in junior Maya Dolliver, leading the team with 14.4 points a contest. Avery Wegner, the team's lone senior who's averaging 12.6 points a game, and sophomore Madeline Dolliver, 10.1 points per game. Wegner is also leading the team in rebounds per game and assists per game, while Madeline Dolliver is dishing out a team-best 3.8 assists per outing. Westwood. The fourth-ranked team in Class 2A, Westwood has enjoyed a remarkable performance from senior Addie Johnson, who missed all of her junior season last winter. The Wayne State commit has scored 167 points in the Rebels' 10-0 start, the fourth-most points scored in 2A. She's doing so by shooting nearly 60% on three-point attempts and free-throw percentages on 52 attempts. Westwood's lineup also boasts junior Ashlyn Davis, who ranks third in 2A with a field goal percentage of 67.7% on 78 shots. Vermilion. The Tanagers are ranked fifth in South Dakota's Class A and are off to a 4-1 start. Vermilion suffered a setback when it played Crofton, a 2023 Nebraska State Tournament team, but it has outscored opponents two. 227 to 116 in the Tanager's four wins. Vermillion will see a tough test coming out the break, though, as a home game against a tough T-area team awaits on January 2nd. Vermillion has been stacking wins recently under head coach John Brooks. Over the last three seasons, the Tanagers have won 12, 17, and 20 games over the last three seasons. Vermillion is trending toward another improvement. By the contest against third-ranked T area, the team that squeaked out a one-point win to knock Vermillion out of last winter's Sodak 16 qualifier may be Vermillion's toughest test in 2023-24. Sioux Central the Rebels have worked their way up to fifth in the Class 2A rankings. Sioux Central is 8-1 and has rattled off five straight wins. Sioux Central has three players scoring in double figures, led by sophomore Avery Wilson's 18.4 points a game. Seniors Brandy Crager at 17.1 and Morgan Christensen's 13.6 are, only on, are also on that list. All three plus Sophomore Caitlin Wildman are averaging more than four rebounds per game, and Christian leads the teams in assists five per game and steals, averaging four an outing. <clears throat> and now for the five players. 
Alexandra Flattery, Sioux City East. East has also gotten a breakout season from sophomore Hudson Rachel, as both Flattery and Rachel are among the top five scorers in Class 5A at over 20 points per game for the 8-3 Black Raiders. While Rachel leads Class 5A in three-point makes per game, Flattery ranks second in points per game, first in three throws makes per game, third in field goal makes and third in field goal percentage. Flattery, a University of Nebraska Kearney commit, is also leading the Black Raiders in rebounds, assists, and steals per game. Trista Ohmeyer, MVAOCOU. The junior is one of the central figures in the Rams' 8-0 start. In Class 2A, Ohmeyer is fourth in scoring average, fourth in assists per game, second in block per contest, and second in field goals made per game. She's also averaging nearly 11 rebounds per game and 3.8 steals per outing. Whitney Jensen, Remsen St. Mary's. The Des Moines Area Community College recruit has been a key figure in the Hawks' 8-0 start. Remsen St. Mary's has held steady in the Class 1A rankings at 4th, and Jensen ranks second among four Hawks averaging double figures at 12.4 points per game. One of four players on the team averaging three or more rebounds, one of the three Hawks averaging four or more assists, and among two players on the team getting two steals a contest or more at 2.1 per game. Jensen also leads the team in blocks per game at 2.1. Madison Stowater, Ridgeview. The Raptors are under 500 thus far at 4-5, but Stowater, a senior, has been remarkable for Ridgeview in 23-24. She ranks fifth in scoring average inside Class 2A at 20.9 points per game. She's also grabbing a team-best 8.9 rebounds a contest and leads the team in assists and steals per game. Stowater has scored 20 or more points in five games this season, including a high of 35 against Manson Northwest Webster. And our last one is Mackenzie Hughes, Akron Westfield. The junior is averaging nearly 22 points per game with percentages of over 40% from the field, 36% from three-point range, and 83% from the free throw line for the 4-3 Westerners. Hughes is also averaging a team-high 6.4 rebounds and is second on the, the team in steals per contest. And we'll now move to Dear Abby, and our letter reads, I am a 40-plus-year-old single male. I recently started hanging out with one of my friend Tom's ex-girlfriends. It is now turning into more than friends. Pam and I both have feelings for each other. She and Tom dated for five months and broke up eight months later. Do I owe it to Tom to ask his permission or tell him I'm seeing her? Pam has asked me not to say anything and to let him find out on his own, which will happen because we have many mutual friends. I want to respect her choice, but also as Tom's friend, I feel the right thing to do is tell him. Please advise. I'm stuck between her wishes and doing what I think is right. And that is signed, stuck in the middle in Iowa. And Abby responds, have a talk with Pam. Explain that you're not sure how Tom will, Tom will react if he sees the two of you arm in arm with no warning. He may not care, but he also could be upset that you are dating and hid it from him. Then tell Pam, in light of your friendship with Tom, you prefer being up front because it's respectful and you don't like keeping secrets. <clears throat> now our next letter. 
My mom died a couple of years ago and left behind many collectibles that are worth reselling. I am the oldest of five children and have spent the most time and effort moving out her collection with a lot of help from two of my siblings, some help from one and absolutely none from another one. In her last days, mom mentioned not to forget about the gold. She had collected some scrap gold that I sold for $900. I've been sorting through the remaining inventory with no help from any of my siblings. Is it wrong of me not to cash, share that cash with them? Signed, Overwhelmed Sibling. And Abby responds, If you truly feel comfortable pocketing the money, you would not be asking this question. Listen to your conscience and share the proceeds from the sale of the precious metal with your siblings. To leave one of them out would guarantee an estrangement. And then we have one more letter. Dear Abby, a friend of mine was asked to leave a restaurant after the check had been paid because people were waiting for tables, and he was highly insulted. My position was that it was courteous to leave because people were waiting to have their dinner. He felt the waitress had no right to ask their party to leave. What is your take on this? Sign, courteous in the East. And Abby responds, I consulted Priscilla, operations manager at my favorite restaurant in Beverly Hills, about your question. She explained that some restaurants have a 90-minute time limit for diners to leave the restaurant. For larger parties, it can be up to 120 minutes. My take on this is that rather than making it the responsibility of the server to ask your friend to give up the table, the manager should have come over and done it. It needn't be an unpleasant exchange. A manager may sometimes offer the patron a seat at the bar and a free drink or dessert in the name of good customer relations. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 2nd. I'm Dogna, your reader. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment, where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed, until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny, dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed. Food became cheaper and more plentiful, grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century, so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.